So later this week, I think it's Wednesday, it's Amber's birthday, the 20th. Amber's birthday is inauguration day, so I don't know how she worked that out. But I'll have to get her like a really unique present, maybe highlighting the, co- the coinciding of those, of those two days. <clears throat> but later this week, our new president will take an oath. Um, he'll probably swear on the Bible. Not all presidents have. Some swear on a book of law. Some swear in on a stack of Bibles. Um, but he'll take an oath swearing to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. He'll take an oath that in the midst of circumstances largely unprecedented in our history, we'll talk a little bit about that, um, he's taking this oath at a really unique time. One of the successes of the unique American experiment, right, going back 200 plus years now, one of the successes proved to be the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another. Uh, Inauguration Day has always been relatively peaceful. About the closest thing I could find to violence on Inauguration Day was the what's called the Inauguration Brawl. See, it's a play on words there, like the Inauguration Ball. The Inauguration Brawl of 1829. Uh, it was Andrew Jackson's inauguration, and he decided as a president of the people, of the common man, that he would just open up the White House to anyone who wanted to come. And it was his own supporters who got a bit out of hand, and some things were broken. And President Jackson, who was in extremely poor health, was forced to to leave his own inauguration uh, party, right? Uh, This week... This inauguration, however, will likely be remembered for its threats and for its fears, for the shutdown of Washington, D.C. and the aftermath of last week's violence. Like, I feel terrible for people who are going to D.C. trying to rent, a, you know, like a Airbnb or something for some other reason, because it's all shut down. Fears abound that state capitals across the country may be the targets of violent protests or the sites of violent protests as well. And we pray that this is not so. We pray that the threats will just be threats and that the fears will just be fears, that the protests will be just protests. And why even bring this up? Honestly, I'm no, not even close to being a scholar of history Um, or student of political science. I pay attention to what's going on in the news, but then I usually have to Google things to remember what a teacher taught me 25, or I can't even do the math in my head, a long time ago in high school, (laughs) right? I, I don't remember, and I don't remember like how a bill becomes a law. I don't remember what I learned in school. I can't remember the Schoolhouse Rock song either, right? So... Um, so we look it up, and I do that a lot when it comes to these things. But I bring it up because many of the people I care about, many of my brothers and sisters in Christ, are not just concerned but confused. They're confused about their citizenship. They're confused about where their loyalties lie. They're confused about where their hope rests. 
and they're confused about their mission in this world. They've forgotten that millions of their brothers and sisters in Christ will wake up the day after Inauguration Day and not wonder how in the world this new president got elected, but wonder how they're going to get food for the day. Mm -hmm. And wonder whether or not they're going to be arrested for worshiping the true king. Psalm 110 is a psalm about a king and his inauguration. Well, technically, it's a coronation, but hopefully you see the connection. This psalm consists of two promises, each followed by an extension or a reflection on the promise. And parts of it should sound, might sound very familiar to you. And that's why this psalm is so important for us to rightly understand today. What I want you to see, what I want to seek deep down into our bones, into the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds, is that these two promises are fulfilled in one king and are established to give us one hope. So listen to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. So this is an inauguration psalm, or again, when it's a king, we call it a coronation This was a psalm, we're not sure of its original context, but would have been used in the the ceremony of coronating a new king in Israel. The first promise in this psalm, in verse 1, it's an oracle, it's a word from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The first promise is that the king will have authority over his kingdom and over his enemies. Sitting at the right hand of God was a position of power and of honor and of authority, especially in the establishment of justice in the kingdom. The image seems to be from the temple complex architecture. In the temple complex, the temple itself faced east. The Ark of the Covenant, right, containing the Ten Commandments, faced east. And to the south... Or to the right, was called the portico of judgment, and it contained the king's throne. It's where the king sat to make judgments among the people. 
The image is that the king is doing for Israel what God is doing for creation, for the earth. You might recall the story in Matthew 20 where James and John's mother, I've dealt with mothers like this as a when I was a coach more than even as a teacher, right? Um, but James and John's mother wants to make sure that her sons will be in the right the place they deserve. So she asked Jesus, grant that one will sit to the right and one will sit to the left in your kingdom. And Jesus told her, uh, that's really none of your business. <laughs> and it's really none of my business either. He said, that's for the Father, for those whom he has appointed. Okay? But this is the image. The sitting at the right hand of God is a position of power and of authority, of judgment. This entire image of the king at God's right hand with his enemies as a footstool isn't so much about how great the king is, but about how all the king's power is derived from God. Okay? Not only will the king rule as God's representative, but God will subdue, by promise, the king's enemies. Picturing the king's enemies as his footstool may envision the act of a conqueror stepping on the throat of his foe. This highlighted the power, the authority, and the control of the victor and the shame and the humiliation of the defeated. Verses 2 and 3 expand on this first promise. The Lord will extend the king's rule from Zion... This is where the temple is. This is Jerusalem. Into the heart of enemy territory. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the rule is going to extend, even geographically, from Jerusalem into enemy territory. And these young warriors will be so taken with the king that they will volunteer for battle. Right? They're going to be willing They'll volunteer for battle, and they'll be as numerous as the morning dew. God will grant the king dominion, rule, victory, and innumerable faithful followers willing to do battle for him. This is the first promise. The second promise is that this king will also be a priest forever. kind of a strange thing to follow, isn't it? This is an unusual and unexpected promise, I think. Uh, it kind of comes out of nowhere. You see, kings were not priests. Uh, one king got into quite a bit of trouble for pretending to be a priest. And we talked about this story a few weeks ago. Or maybe it's been longer than that now, I don't know. But do you remember when Samuel has his men assembled waiting to fight? And they're waiting on, um, I'm sorry, Saul. And they're waiting on Samuel to come and make a sacrifice. And Saul becomes impatient, makes it himself. It's no little deal that Saul played the role of the priest in that story. It cost him his kingdom. His punishment, the Lord says to him, because of this, I'm giving your kingdom to someone else, to David. Saul loses his kingdom for pretending to be a priest. At the same time, though, we see David sometimes acting like a priest. 
David does make sacrifices of some bulls, and he even wears priestly garments when he's, if you remember the story of when he's dancing around in joy for the Lord, and his wife's embarrassed by it, right? And we have uh, David's sons who are called priests as well. But generally speaking, the role of king and the role of priest were almost always distinct. Yet here, and the Lord declares this emphatically, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. If, if there's ever a promise, right, that's a promise. That David will be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, why Melchizedek? Melchizedek takes us back to a time long before Aaron and the priesthood we normally think of. So normally when we think of the priesthood in the Old Testament, we think of people from the line of Aaron. Aaron's sons, Aaron's descendants, they were priests. Melchizedek, Melchizedek takes us back long before Aaron. Um, the law required that the priests be from, from Aaron, from that line. But here the Lord's oracle puts this priesthood in the likeness not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek to take us back even before the law was given. So who is Melchizedek? It's hard to say. Uh, well, his name is hard to say. It's also hard to say who he was. We don't know a lot. He's not mentioned. Just here. And in Genesis 14, and then a few times in Hebrews. He's actually talked about more than Hebrews than anywhere else. In Genesis 14, Abram, before he's Abraham, so Abram has just rescued Lot from this alliance of kings that are battling this other alliance of kings. And they they take over, they overrun Sodom and Lot and all of his possessions are taken. Abram gets word about this and he goes and defeats this alliance of kings and rescues Saul, uh, rescues Lot and all of his possessions. And seemingly out of nowhere appears Melchizedek. We're told that he's the king of Salem which might be a reference to Jerusalem. Could be the same place, but we don't know for sure. And he brings bread and he brings wine. And in addition to being told that he's a king of Salem, we're also told that he's a great high priest of God Most High. Melchizedek blesses Abram and praises God for Abram's victory. Then Abram tithes. To Melchizedek. It's kind of strange, right? He gives him 10% of everything. Probably not everything he owned, but probably 10% of the stuff he got back from Lot's rescue. Uh, maybe 10% from any resources or whatever he took along the way to support his little army. We don't know exactly, but Abram tithes to Melchizedek. The Lord's promise to the king is that he will be a priest king like Melchizedek forever. We really don't see this fulfilled in any of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah once the kingdom's divided. There might be glimpses of it, shadows of it. However, this priest king concept and character was an important part of the hope of God's people. We see it in Zechariah 6. 
In Zechariah 6, the Lord tells Zechariah to go and make a crown out of silver and gold and place it on the head of the high priest and to deliver this prophecy. Here is the man whose name is Branch. And he will branch out from this place and build a temple for the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. So in this prophetic act of Zechariah, we have a unity of the roles of priest, the role of king, priest and king, a vision. It became a hope of God's people, a hope for the future. Verses 5 through 7 expand on this priest-king promise. Surprisingly, we had in verse 5, we have this move from the king seated at God's right hand to God seated at the right hand of the priest-king. Okay? From the king ruling on God's behalf to God acting on the priest king's behalf. The Lord is going to act in judgment on the nations and, and their kings. And here, here's why I think this move is made. Okay, I think uh, originally the king is at the right hand of God as a sign that his power and authority come from God. Then you have God at the right hand of the priest king. And God's the one who's crushing the enemy. God's the one who's defeating the enemy. So the king, even if the king is commanding his army and even if his men are performing their duty in, in allegiance to the king in terms of defeating the enemies, it's not only God's authority, right, but it's also God's ability that's getting this, this work done. The Lord's going to act in judgment on the nations and on their kings. This judgment will be absolute and extensive, crushing the rulers of the whole earth, right? The whole earth. It's absolute and it's extensive. Notice, look carefully, that this absolute and extensive victory of God over the rulers of the nations of the whole earth, it's depicted as happening in one day, the day of his wrath. This combined with the reality that Israel never had this priest-king promised here, and the fact that none of her kings ever executed the absolute and extensive judgment of the nations promised here, that should focus our eyes to the future. And it does. Uh, the last words of the psalm are words of victory. Verse 7 is hard to understand. Is it picturing the Lord drinking from a brook or the king drinking from a brook? I don't know for sure. But either way, but the, the pronouns get kind of lost in here. Um, and, and scholars are, are a bit divided on who this is referring to. But either way, the point seems to be that the victor, whether it's pictured as the Lord acting on behalf of the king or the king acting by his authority for the Lord, the image is that the victor will be refreshed along the way, that he will not exhaust himself in carrying out this victory. And then he will lift his head high. In contrast to the crushed heads of the kings of the nations, God lifts 
this priest king's head high in honor and in victory. Now, I have hinted that this psalm is not really about earthly kings. It might have given some kind of image of what a perfect earthly king would have looked like, but it was an image, it was a kind of king the people never really had. There are hints of it at times, there are shadows of it at times, but no man, even the best man, was ever this priest king like the psalm promises. So as I have suggested, we look forward. We look as God's people did to the future. Now fortunately, we don't have to look too far. About a thousand years after David, and it's about 400 pages ahead in my Bible, Jesus quotes part of Psalm 110 and tells us who it's about. So if you would like, turn to Matthew 22. Or you can stay in Psalm 10 and just listen. Jesus is in the midst of this, uh, uh, this time where the religious leaders of, of the Jews are trying to trap him. Right? So uh, the Pharisees ask him about taxes. The Sadducees ask him about marriage and resurrection. And, and they're trying to trap Jesus in an answer, right? And Jesus doesn't ever get trapped. But maybe, tired of answering questions, Jesus asks his own question. So I'll start in uh, verse 41, actually, of chapter 22 in Matthew. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, Who do you th- or What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And then Matthew tells us no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay. Jesus is implying that David was talking about him. And his argument is this. David could never refer to his own son as Lord. So the Messiah isn't David's son, not David's natural son but God's son, because the Messiah is David's Lord. Peter makes the same point about Jesus in Acts. In his speech, his sermon at Pentecost, in Acts 2, verses 34 to 36, he quotes the same verse. And he says this, um, I'll start back in verse 32 of, of Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or both Lord and Christ. Peter saying this isn't about David. David died. David's in the grave. David's not at God's right hand. But the promise in this psalm is that the king would be at God's right hand. So what's going on? Well, it's not about David. The king who is right now at God's right hand is none other than Jesus himself. When we see the rest of this verse of, of Psalm 110 verse 1 applied to Jesus by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, when he comes back, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This beautiful passage gives us the already and not yet nature of Christ's rule. His resurrection assures our resurrection. His resurrection inaugurates, inaugurates his kingdom. King Jesus has won, though that victory is still being announced and still being established. But Jesus has won. Death has lost its sting, the grave, its victory. But death itself will finally and utterly be crushed when the dead in Christ are raised to life and for life in the new heavens and the new earth. Not only does Jesus fulfill this kingly role of ruling at God's right hand and as, as, a, as a king who, whose enemies are subjected to him, who are his footstool, he is also our great high priest. This is the whole point of Hebrews 5. We have a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek who has ascended to heaven. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, yet did not sin. We have a great high priest who is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And then skipping ahead, Hebrews 7, the whole chapter is, is about this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. Jesus isn't our great high priest by regulation. Jesus isn't our great high priest because he was born to the right family, because he has the right genealogy. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life and on the basis of an oath made by his father. Then Hebrews tells us for regular priests, these priests by birth, these priests by regulation, death means the end of the office. Death means the end of priesthood for that individual but Jesus is so much better because he lives forever. 
and is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Then Hebrews 7.26, and I love the simplicity. It's really a summary of it all. The, the first half of Hebrews 7.26, such a high priest truly meets our need. Such a high priest truly meets our need. The implications of this, that Psalm 110 is really talking about the Messiah, that Jesus fulfills these roles as king and as priest, the implications of that are vast. And I don't have time to even scratch the surface this morning. But considering a coronation psalm so near Inauguration Day, I want to suggest two implications of Jesus as our victorious king and forever interceding high priest that might help us not to get our hopes confused, that might help us not to get wrapped up in what human rulers and human nations do. When I look at the despair I see in some of my brothers and sisters in Christ over the events of the last several months, two realities hit me. And they're not the same, though they are very related. And here's how they're related. It expresses, and I'm not saying people say this, but just as I look at what's going on and try to think of how we can get to this place, it seems to me that there's the mistake of having a dichotomous or a compartmentalized view of God's kingdom. And here's what I mean by that. Some people approach it this way, <clears throat> that I have a set of rules for how I live my life, and then I've got Jesus to take care of the afterlife, right? So while I'm a citizen of this nation, I do what people do, right? And that could be as innocent as you know, voting and expressing opinions, but it could also be lying and manipulation and violence because that's what people apart from Christ do. So I've got one set of rules for how I conduct myself as a citizen here in my earthly life. Then I've got Jesus, right? Jesus is there to take care of the afterlife. A different way to compartmentalize this is to say that you're, you have this secular life, which is governed by secular rules. A secular life is driven by your rights. And by demanding your rights. But then when you go to church, or when you do religious things, or you're at Bible study, you do things differently. This is my religious life, and this is my non-religious life. The answer to both of those is this. Jesus is your king and your priest. As king, he alone has the authority to tell you how to conduct yourself in life on this earth. Jesus, your king, if you've declared your allegiance to him, says in John 18, 36, for example, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus tells us how to live. How to treat our brothers and sisters, as well as how to treat our supposed enemies. Uh, Paul, certainly reflecting on Jesus' teaching, tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And this, of course, I think meshes wonderfully with Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6 about who our enemy really is and what our weapons really are. This is not afterlife teaching. This is not teaching for the religious component of your earthly life. You can't say, if you're a follower of Jesus, that there's a different set of rules for your political or your secular life. Jesus, as our priest king, speaks to all of life. Mm -hmm. Just as his work on the cross enables and empowers the transformation of all of life. And if you accept this, if you believe it, if you truly trust in Jesus as your king and as your great high priest, and I'll say this, you can't pick one without the other. Right? right. Jesus is one. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king, but we don't pick and choose what role we want him to play in our lives. But if you truly trust in Jesus as your king and as your great high priest, there will never Never, never be reason for despair or for hopelessness that would cause you to act out in word or in deed, in violence or aggression to others who bear his image. The sons and daughters of God will wake up on January the 21st the day after Inauguration Day. A few of them, right? A few of them with a new president. But all of them with one king who is also our great high priest. Pray with me. Father, I know I, I do a, a pretty poor job most of the time in allowing the reality of who my Savior is to penetrate into every single part of my life. Um, as much as I know not to compartmentalize my life and divide it into secular and sacred, when it conveniences me, I do it. And it's a struggle. And it's, uh, uh, it's something that I pray that you would work out in me, that you would continue working out in me. Uh, as well as everyone here. I imagine it's a struggle for most of us. Father, thank you so much that our Savior is our King who has authority over all the earth, who has already 
at the cross and in his, re- in his resurrection defeated evil and sin and death. And though we don't experience that victory in a complete way yet, Lord, someday, maybe soon, maybe much later, we don't know. But someday you will raise us all with resurrected bodies to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more tears or sorrow. And Father, I pray that the reality of that day, even though it's in the future, would remind us now that we conduct ourselves here in every place, in every way, on every day, in allegiance to you and to you alone. And Father, sometimes that might bring us into conflict with with being a citizen of particular nations. And I pray that when that conflict occurs, that you would give us courage. Because our only hope, and the only hope for those around us who who don't yet know you, is to proclaim you as their king and as their great high priest. Father, thank you that even right now as we're we're praying here this morning in Port Lyons that you are at the right hand of your Father interceding on our behalf. Lord, if you ever stopped that, we would be destroyed. We would be defeated. But your promises are certain. We know that you will reign forever and ever. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.